0: The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice
2: America Talk Radio Network,
1: its staff and management.
2: Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to the second stage with your hosts Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here is Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick.
3: Welcome to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick, and my co-host Brendan Anderson is like I, I like to say, out on assignment, he's actually headed west to close on another investment by our firm, Evolution Capital Partners. Uh, lots going on this summer, and like everybody, um, I'm sorry that summer is coming to a close. The weather was okay here in the upper Midwest, and uh was too busy really to get as much golf in as I like to get in, um, and... Uh, just never really slept in and never really uh, uh, chilled out, actually. But we got a lot done uh, at Evolution, got a lot done in the home front. And uh, I guess uh, whether I'm ready for it or not, the uh, the uh, season is about to get started again. Uh, in our world at Evolution Capital Partners, things have historically slowed down in the summertime. I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't feel like talking about business um in the summer they want to enjoy all the things i just talked about and um typically deal flow picks up for us right about now right the week before labor day and then it really kicks in uh in september uh through the holidays and uh it is so it moves very very fast uh evolution has its annual meeting in october and uh, we spent a lot of time preparing for that in September and October because that's a very special day for us where we have our investors and our uh, partner company CEOs all in the same place. And um, frankly, none of our investors really want to hear about evolution. They want to spend all their time listening to, to what they've invested in. Um, before I get on to today's topic I wanted to talk about last week's topic, which um, was, was uh, a, a good and important topic. It's, it's something called conscious capitalism, the benefits of aligned organizations. Our guest was Bill Vogelgasong, co-founder of Candlewood Partners. And uh, I've known Bill for a long time, and uh, a lot of what he said actually fits well with uh, what we do here at, at evolution. Uh, Basically, Conscious Capitalism says that companies have the highest chance for success if they're aligned with a higher societal purpose and are focused on creating value for all stakeholders, not just the shareholders. So at Evolution, we like to say that we create life-changing events for small business owners, their employees, and the communities in which they operate. Because a big part of what we do at Evolution – Um, is we want to invest in businesses that create jobs. Uh, We want to invest in businesses that can generate a return uh, because everyone is doing better, that's a stakeholder, employee, or a person in the community, uh, and not make money uh, by cutting somebody's pay from $12 an hour to $10 an hour, or cutting their benefits, and so on and so forth. That's no fun, uh, and that's not what we're going to do here at Evolution. And that... Thought process funnels very well into uh, conscious capitalism. In fact, uh, one of the um, uh, uh, examples that Bill used was John Mackey of Whole Foods, who is, you know, uh, one of the, I guess, uh, early adopters of, of conscious capitalism and, uh, you know, at whole foods, you know, they embody the short phrase, whole body, whole planet, whole foods endeavors to lead its customers toward healthy eating. And it tries to manage its supply chain to do the, to do the most good, or at least the least harm. Uh, and, uh, and they also made the other point, uh, aside from being, um, you know, having a higher societal purpose is, that these companies actually do better from a return perspective, that the return over the past 15 years for, uh, the top, you know, 18 companies that, that focus on conscious capitalism did 10 times better than the S and P average. So, um, you know, again, I, we're big believers of it here at at evolution. Uh, these are the kind of businesses that we want to partner with, uh, and, and those that, uh, are, you know, Doing some of that, we try to develop it uh, as we develop the business model and try to make it bigger, better, and faster than when we found it. And I would uh, challenge uh, the listeners out there to think about doing something like that with uh, your, your own organization. It, it makes you feel better when you go bed at night and uh it certainly doesn't harm your your business and the st- statistics which suggest that uh, you are you're much better off uh, having having done that uh this week's guest uh, is Jeff Dr excuse me we have a lot of doctors here i think that says something about the circles that Brenda and i run in but Dr Jeff DeGraff he can be found at www.jeffdegraff.com that's jeff and then D-E-G-R-A-F-F dot com. Uh, He is, uh, and today's show is titled Innovation and Established Businesses, Where to Start. You know, I thought this was such a great topic because one of the biggest challenges that you have when you're trying to create value in your business is uh, being innovative, new ideas, fresh things to think about to to try to uh, break out and really do something uh, interesting and different and better to help your your business grow and, and thrive. And at Evolution, you know, we certainly come up with good ideas, uh, but we're really, at least initially, following the vision of the business owner. We are not coming up with these visions on our own. Uh, you know, it's too hard to do because we invest across a lot of different different industries. Um, and, and, uh, so we're really relying on the founder, but once we get in there, you know, we've seen a lot of business models, invested in a lot of businesses, partnered with a lot of smart people. And so we can certainly be helpful, but, Again, this is one of those things where you know we're trying to trying to talk about best practices here uh, on the second stage, and innovation is one of those those tricky topics. And uh, you know, they, they Jeff DeGraff is uh, certainly an expert. Uh, In this field, and he's called the the Dean of of Innovation. Uh, Jeff is a professor of management and organization at the Ross School of Business, which is at the University of Michigan. Uh, He's an author. We're going to talk about some of his books uh, when he gets um, in the next segment. Uh, He's a speaker, uh, and he's advisors to many top uh, companies in in the world. I've got a uh, list of some of his clients here. I remember seeing Prudential because I used to work at Prudential, which is a fine organization. Uh, but he has worked with American Airlines, Eaton, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, General Electric, Pfizer. Uh, I'm sure all of you are aware of at least uh, one of those uh companies uh but you know hopefully uh jeff can help all of us think a little bit more clearly about innovation and create a framework for uh, being innovative and creating new ideas and developing our businesses uh so that we can get better and and move faster farther and smarter uh, uh in 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 the future um before I go much further, I do want to remind everyone that each week we want to provide actionable advice and have you continue the dialogue through comments and questions on our blog at evolutioncp.com. We want to hear what works and we want to hear what doesn't work. We want to create a true community of entrepreneurs helping entrepreneurs. You can also email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com, uh, or you can call us at eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. Uh, would love for you to volunteer to the community, your experiences and solutions. Uh, I also want to thank our sponsors, McGladry LLP. They're a leading provider of assurance, tax and consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide with more than 6700 6,700 people in 75 U.S. cities. As I said, we use McLadry, uh for just about everything here at Evolution, and we found that uh, they are very good at working uh, with uh, small businesses as well as large businesses. And if you all are like we are at Evolution, you want to make your small business into a large one. Uh, unless, of course, you're a small giant, uh, which is a phrase that our guest and friend Bo Burlingham coined, which means that uh, being big is not your goal. It's really a uh, being better that is your goal. Um, but here at Evolution, uh, our goal is to get bigger and better um, so with that we're going to take a break uh, and then when we come back we will be with our guest uh, Dr. Jeff DeGraff uh, professor of management organization Ross School of Business University of Michigan author speaker and advisor to top organizations in the world regarding uh, innovation and his competing values framework thanks for tuning in to the second stage
2: Out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at voiceamericatrn.
1: Is your business model robust enough in today's ever-changing business environment? People are working to transform themselves, their futures and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel.
2: In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait, they just go for it. welcome
3: back to the show the second stage this is jeff Cadlick and my partner brendan anderson is on a plane right now and won't be joining uh, us today uh like any forum this show will be more effective and powerful if folks contribute their experiences and ideas and we invite you to continue the discussion from each each week's show on our blog which can be found at evolutioncp.com. You can email us as well at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. We've got a great show planned today. Uh, Innovation established businesses, where to start. Um, Entrepreneurship and innovation typically go hand in hand as one creates a product or service, but can sometimes get lost as one establishes and then begins to grow their business to uncover how a business can be re-energized through innovation. Uh, We are welcoming our guest today, Dr. Jeff DeGraff, dubbed the Dean of Innovation through his work as both a professor of management and organization at the University of Michigan over the past 25 years, as well as an advisor to many of the world's leading organizations. So during this episode, Jeff, we want to learn from you about what business owners can do to jumpstart innovation in their established organizations.
0: Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on, Jeff. First, let me tell you where that nickname came from—the Dean of Innovation. If your <laughs> listeners don't know this, well, before I became a professor and started working with very big companies, when I was 25 years old, I had a PhD in artificial intelligence, and instead of going to work for an Ivy League school, I went to work for a man who had been bankrupt two years earlier, Chapter 11. I was one of the original executives that built Domino's Pizza,
2: and oh, really? from the ground
0: up so i so in a sense the new books i'm writing the the column i'm i'm doing uh, for ink etc are really kind of going home and sort of taking sort of coming full circle from where i started and then trying to apply all the additional stuff i've learned from working with big companies and trying to apply them back to somebody's trying to build a business so, so walk me through that. I mean, Domino's
3: Pizza obviously is uh, you, you know, a very well-known uh, brand today. What was it like when you, when you got there? I mean, well, bring us back to, to yeah, the beginning. The one
0: thing I think everybody can relate to who's an entrepreneur is there's about three times as much work as you need to do as the capability <laughs> that you have to do it. And so really the amazing thing about the way Domino's got built was because we couldn't compete on scope or scale with these larger companies like be you know, like Pizza Hut like PepsiCo we had to find a niche that we could get momentum on and momentum is a really big word so what you had to start doing was finding ways of bringing people into the organization that were really going to get some traction for you without uh, the, the kind of deep pockets that maybe someone else had. And so what we did was kind of outrageous, because most of these kind of franchise organizations, you have to pay to buy a franchise. And, you know, these are more traditional people, and they own 20 or 30 franchises. That's not how it worked at Domino's back in the day. Back in the day, we, we took the franchisees who were the most successful, and we apprenticed young people to them, and they had to work for a year. And in in, in uh, what we gave the franchisee who was very successful was we waived some of their franchisee rights. But what they were doing was apprenticing these young people. Then we created a second organization, basically, to fund these young people to start their own organization. And we called this the Manager and Training Program. So what we had right off the bat were young, motivated, and competent people. And during the period of time that I was there, the five years I was there from 1985 to 1990, the company grew at around 300% a year. And it grew not because of money. It grew because we picked a very specific niche and we developed a very specific culture and competency that really got momentum. It was key.
3: So so that, that is really in my mind the crux of you know, what we need to be talking about is so how did you come up with that idea? I mean, what what was going on? Did you go into a room with a bunch of executives and just whiteboard it in a big pot of coffee or was there some more established framework around how you oh, approach
0: it? I'd I'd, oh, I'd love to tell you how smart I was and you gotta imagine. <laughs> you know, I'm a I'm a smart nose. 25 year old kid, all these other people, you know, had been in the service and, you know, they'd worked at, you know, gas stations and all kinds of things. So they weren't, they weren't about to listen to me. So the first thing I discovered was you got to develop some credibility with these people. And the way you do it is I spent an insane amount of time on airplanes, in stores, learning what the stores did. And the second piece was, because I had a technological background and, and because, you know, my area was, uh, you know, how to actually make things better and new, which is what innovation's about, I would go to these stores and mostly to the commissaries, which were the big kind of, um, the places that manufactured the dough and, the, you know, the cheese and the vegetables, et cetera. And I would apply some of these improvements. And, and you can imagine... None of them were really sort of gigantic at the beginning. They were very, very small. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that movie Moneyball. I hope some of your listeners have seen Moneyball. Because it's, it's about screwing around until you get it right. So when people wrote the books about this at the end of this and talked about how we saw everything and how smart we were, it wasn't like that at all. It was a lot of tweaks, a lot of people in rooms, a lot of people rushing around, a lot of dead ends a lot of projects that didn't materialize, and the way I describe this in my work is I say, ride what moves. It's really trying to figure out where you're getting momentum. And it's, and it's never where you think it is. It's never the person who has the perfect pedigree that runs the great commissary. It's never the deal with the great, you know, with the, with the number one vendor that you want to have that really transforms it. It's something else. But it's really about being mindful at the beginning while you're shaking everything. It's really being mindful what's getting traction, what's getting energy.
3: So, what you're saying is, is it's, uh, it's a much uglier process than, than is in the mind's eye, and these uh, entrepreneurs and small business owners shouldn't get so frustrated when they miss on the first or second try.
0: Oh, I did. not I, I could even add more to that. Um, in the 1980s, I was on the advisory board at Apple. And this is when jobs is being pushed out. I'm, like I said, I'm a kid, I'm a stupid kid. And um, this is when uh, something is being built called Applied Integrated Systems, so AIS. This is before the Internet. This is a decade before the Internet. And um, we're trying to build something called AppleNet, which becomes something else and eventually becomes iTunes. Um, it, it's hilarious because now everybody talks about how you knew what everything was going to be. But basically it starts out with, with this general idea of what you're building in general. Uh, I call them high-quality targets. You have to come up with it. And, of course, the challenge, Jeff is when you're young or when you're starting out, the target becomes so big you couldn't possibly hit it, right? And that was us at Domino's at the beginning. Or the challenge when you get big is you just twist the dial a little bit. You're not doing anything very interesting. So the hardest part of all this, at both Domino's and Apple, was getting something that we thought we could really build. And I think in both cases, the innovation really was from necessity. Remember, the reason that I'm making a bit of a jump here, but the reason that AppleNet got built at Apple was because we couldn't compete with Microsoft on the amount of software that they could write. So we built a, a, a system, uh, a, 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 the beginnings of an Internet, if you will. We built a system, and we gave code to value-added resellers so that they could write programming for uh, for, for Apple products. Does this sound familiar? And that brought in Tom Perkins and some of the VCs like Kleiner Perkins, in the old days, and this is how they competed by at least having some software. So, both in the Domino's case and in the Apple case, some of the biggest breakthroughs came from uh, the constraints, not the freedom that we had, the constraints of what we could not do against larger rivals. And remember, when you're, when you're smaller, you know, it, it, it's, sort of like in a, it's sort of like going back to the old neighborhood I grew up in. I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood. When you're smaller, you know, you have to throw the first punch in the bar fight. <laughs> you have to because right. if you throw the second, you'll be on your back. So the first mover advantage is always going to go to the entrepreneur, and and the entrepreneur has to realize that they actually have less to lose than the, the, than the person who's trying to protect the rent.
3: Hmm. So it's interesting, both at Domino's and at Apple, uh, it seems like you employed a strategy where you were leveraging a network of people that you had access to to really grow more quickly because they were out there really trying to develop your business and you didn't have to be – in every meeting, at every store, in every uh, coding session. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's correct. And, and I think it's a key thing for your listeners, too, which is the most, the most important thing I think an entrepreneur can remember. And incidentally, I am totally, a total hypocrite because in my career, and remember now I also own businesses now, it's very hard as an entrepreneur to step back, to not want to be in the middle of everything and you know you read about it and everybody talks about it but i think every entrepreneur should have an understudy that's the key you're only as good as the two or three people right around you and if you get that wrong it doesn't matter what your strategy is you're not going to get it right so that initial team that you work with i think the way to develop them is the way doctors get taught see one do one teach one you know trial by fire so what you do is you bring them along to the deal and okay, maybe he, and maybe he or she doesn't get it the first time, and maybe that's a long conversation at the Marriott. And then maybe a couple times later, you let them do it. And that's very hard for entrepreneurs, because you know they're going to fail the first time. Incidentally, so did all of us, right? Because mm-hmm. all learning, when it comes to innovation, if you're doing something new, all learning is developmental. If you don't believe that, take out a piece of paper and draw a picture of your spouse, and anyone can tell you at what age you stopped learning to draw, play an instrument, speak a language, all learning to do something new. Innovation is developmental. There's no way avoiding the failure cycle. So you have to accelerate it. So take these people around you, right? Don't put them in positions where they can't afford to fail. Your largest client, your largest market, take them to places where you can afford to fail. And everybody has some place they can afford to fail out of the way. And then finally, over time, Those people become the the people that connect the dots for you, that get you into a network, that get you a line of sight to emerging technologies, emerging markets, emerging opportunities. And they're going to cross boundaries because innovation isn't going to happen in your sector. You're not going to find the great solution looking in your own sector. I come back to Domino's. I mean, the great solutions that we had at Domino's were not found in the food industry. We found them in other industries, and we simply took what we saw and applied it to our industry, which, of course, is what Steve Jobs and everybody else talked about when he was alive about simply connecting dots. It's really what it is.
3: Hmm. So it's uh, it's a, a lot of, I guess, getting out of
0: your comfort zone. Is that is that fair? I think I think every day, you know, I'm a middle aged man at this point. I think if you're not occasionally doing something that you're you believe is a little over your head or a little faster than you can handle it, I think you're probably not going fast enough. And again, I come back to momentum as a key word here. You want momentum. If the innovation doesn't happen through, through excessive planning, in fact, there, there is a fundamental challenge of innovation, which is it's the only time-based form of value. And what that means, it's a clever way of saying it happens in the future but we don't have any data on the future do we you know so what people do is they do excessive data gathering you know so we've all been to the meeting about the meeting or seen the report about the report and while you're studying things other people are are launching so the challenge of innovation is that you're always supposed to be uh, you know sort of a uh, one horizon farther than you really can be and the biggest form of resistance to innovation is excessive planning People who are who are waiting and waiting and waiting, while other people are running the experiments. So, so there is this key idea that you do have to be a little bit over what you can handle. But, but there are four steps I think that are critical. And, and maybe uh, maybe when we're come back from the break, I'll take you through what I think are the simplest steps for an entrepreneur to actually get this kind of momentum and get these people around them.
3: Yeah, and you're being innovative because you're getting ahead of. <laughs> Uh, of, of, that's good. That's good. And, and and in the next segment, we are going to talk about uh, you know all of your books, including your most recent book, Making Stone Soup, How to Jumpstart Teams. Highlights. Uh, and, and before we go on a break, though, I wanted to uh, just ask you a little bit more about the momentum because, in my mind, momentum obviously is employing the help of others a little bit to move faster than one person can move if you can tap 10 other people to do it. But it also, in my mind, also implies that you're more efficient to maybe not making as many mistakes, or am I mis- misreading that?
0: I don't know if you are more efficient. I certainly think that would be a hallmark of my own work. I'm a kind of an efficiency wonk. But I would say, I would say this, a couple things to, to your listeners. Number one, We're living in an age where connecting with other people is transparent, particularly through universities, through incubators, through government incentive programs. These are called COINS, Collaborative Open Innovation Networks. So it's relatively easy to put seekers and solvers together. These are things I worked on in the 80s, right? So number one, if you don't know anybody in any of these places, you're not working very hard at it, right? Right. Give yourself a couple hours on the web and pick up the phone and call a few people. That little candy bar in your pocket can do stuff. You know, that back in the old days, we, you know, we're supercomputers. So number one, reach out across your business. But you have to, in order to get these deals to work, you can't talk ambiguously. You have to say, I've got this kind of project. I've got this kind of a client. I need this service. You've got to be very specific because the problem is there's a lot of noise in these networks, right? And the problem is there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, ig- ig- amateurs in these networks. So what you're trying to find are people with real solutions to this and to search and reapply them. That's step one. The second, if you want to get momentum, don't start in the middle of your organization. Start in your organization where you have a crisis or you're on a roll. So have your listeners think about a bell curve for a minute. You know, where innovation is going to happen is not the middle of your bell curve, that large 12-step program you're running that's like a quality program that's never going to produce innovation because the middle of an entrepreneurial organization, a small firm, is designed to stay alive. It's designed to create equilibrium. But where it has a crisis, the risk of trying something radical and the reward of staying where you're at is reversed. The same is true when you're on a roll. This is what we call risk capital. So whether... You know, think about it. Think about Apple for just a minute. 1997, Apple's trading below 7 bucks a share, right? The right. only reason Apple becomes Apple is the risk and reward proposition is flipped. They have to take the safety off and play with a live round. You know, they're almost dead. And this is why, and this is what economists tell you, right? This is also what Schumpeter and the great economists tell you, that innovation is not an upcycle phenomenon. It's a down-cycle phenomenon. And the reason is... Risk and reward is reversed. Now, here's the good news to all your listeners. There's a part of everybody's organization that's kind of stinking it up. That's where you want to launch it, and you move back to the middle. You don't start in the middle and move out. The big mistake is you move from the middle out. That's the mistake. The answer is move from the outside in. It's a pincer maneuver.
3: Huh. That is, I, I think that's your know. The risk-reward concept is reversed, I think, is is a great advice and something that we'll touch on in, in the next segment, but we are going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion on innovation with Dr. Jeff DeGraff, who can be found at www.jeffdegraff.com. That's D-E-G-R-A-F-F dot com. Of course, it's after Jeff. Thanks for tuning in to The Second Stage.
1: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
2: Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways?
3: Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is our show, but it is a forum, so we're looking for input from you so that we can benefit from everyone's experience. We are back here uh, talking about innovation and established businesses and where to start with our guest, Dr. Jeff DeGraff, the Dean of Innovation and Professor of Management and Organization at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. And uh, we finished off the uh, last segment talking about reversing the roles of of risk and reward. Um, But I also want to make time to talk about uh, a couple other uh, important things that Jeff has been involved with. Uh, The competing values framework uh, is one of the things I'd like to bring up first, Jeff. You could spend a little bit of time explaining to our audience what that's all about.
0: Yeah, it's often referred to as the Michigan model. You've seen it everywhere. It's probably one of the tw- 25 top you know, management models of all time. Uh, I'm kind of the third of the four people that de- developed a lot of the pieces to this. Basically, it says that um, leadership is effective in specific situations and ineffective and actually destroys value in others. So this is not a Myers-Briggs test that says, I'm an ENTP or an INFJ and talks about style. It actually talks about value creation. So the original work was how leaders create or destroy value in very specific situations. So a metaphor might be, thinking about a bull market or a bear market, you can't be the same trader interchangeably. You know, in a bear market, you have to trade to be defensive, in a bull market, you have to trade to, to, to capture opportunities. Same is true for management. Well, this was the work of Bob Quinn, the work of Kim Cameron, then came in and said, well, this is also true for the development of culture and competencies." So the equation goes, leaders create culture and competencies. My work with Anjan Thacker, who used to be on the Nobel Prize Committee, was the culture and competency produces what types of value. So it's very specific about share prices, about stock prices. So the work was originally this very... Uh, interesting academic work to see if we could sync up what leaders do with what organizations do to what the market uh, likes, what the market will take as an opportunity and predicting value, using it to predict value. Now let's make it simple. For an entrepreneur, all this really means is this. There are four types of value creation and they are against each other. They are competing. Now why is this important innovation? This is very important, this next concept. Innovation is not produced through alignment. Innovation is produced through constructive conflict. Let me repeat that. Innovation is produced through constructive or creative conflict. When two forms of value push against each other, assuming they're constructive, it produces a hybrid, a new form of value. It has a baby, right? And, and that is what the innovation is. So alignment will get you any one of the value propositions, any one of the eight value propositions, but it won't get you the innovation. So what are the four competing values? One, what we often call the forward position is the create form of competing value, radical innovation with radical risk, right? So we get a high degree of, 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 of magnitude, but we also get the risk that goes with it. So think about a biotech or a fashion company or a startup that's got a radical proposition, the opposite, that's the control point of view, which is, which is about getting things to scale incrementally with little risk. So I want you to think about, you know, McDonald's where that kid presses a cheeseburger button and simultaneously somebody, you know, shoots a cow somewhere, right? And the notion is right. everything in between happens. Now, these two things push against each other, not just in a company. This isn't a style issue. I want you to think about how a radical new car design quality goes down because you're introducing variation so the standardization goes down. Think of it like a teeter-totter. And so when people say, oh, you can have it all, no, you can't have it all. You can have things in sequence. You can do things first and second and third. But the object is you've got to get this synced up. So the first set of tensions is create versus control, small versus big. The second set of tensions are how fast you're going to go. So the, the fastest one, the, the performance one, is what we're going to call the compete form of value. And again, there is a bunch of metrics that are associated with this and a bunch of practices. So this isn't a style manual. This is a how-to-fix-your-car manual. And these are the things that Wall Street loves. Wall Street loves compete forms of value because it pays every quarter. You know, think about this is Goldman Sachs. This is General Electric. This is that small startup that figured out about the third year how to actually make the shareholders very, very happy by focusing on three things that it's doing, right? And it goes from having one store, two stores, and this is when it gets to 20 or 30. It's the beginning of the bulge bracket, right? Well, the opposite of that is the collaborate point of view, which is about developing your team and your culture and your people, making sure that you've got the kind of relationship with customers that you want. Now, the trade-off is you can go very fast and be not sustainable, or you can go very slow and be sustainable. These four points of view, these four values, not only occur in organizations, they occur in economies, which we're not going to have time to talk about today, but this is actually how we look at revenue stocks versus growth stocks, leading indicators versus lagging indicators, et cetera. So this this works in a lot larger level than I think a lot of entrepreneurs are used to seeing this. So what I did around this, around constructive conflict, was I wrote a book, a simple book for entrepreneurs called Making Stone Soup. How to jumpstart innovation teams. So I took the stuff that I would write in the textbook that a lot of the big business schools use, a lot of top business schools used, and I boiled it down to something that you could you could understand in five minutes. How to get a team around you that has these four points that have these four points of view, and how to create the conflict. Now, once you've got that, and you understand what type of value you're trying to produce. Now, this is key. Because everybody, you know, you know, if you talk to anyone, they'll say, "I want everything." Well, you can't have everything. It's sort of like, would you rather live forever or be healthy forever? You know, like the devil's contracts, right? So you have to organize or prioritize what you want—sort of one to ten or you know A to Z. But here's the key. Now, once you've got these four points of view with constructive conflict, there are really only four things an entrepreneur needs to do to make innovation happen. Number one. High quality targets, we already talked about that. They've got to be things that can hit. They've got to be things that are valuable. They've got to be things that are possible. Two, building on the competing values framework, you have to have deep and diverse domain experts. Now, let me, let me explain this a little bit. Innovation is not an amateur sport. If you're, try, if you're a little biotech out there or even a fancy restaurant chain, you've got to have some people who know a thing or two about what you're working on. This is not... An amateur sport. We have a former student here at Michigan, Larry Page, who created a company called Google. And I had a reporter <laughs> recently tell me, well, they were amateurs when they created Google, and my response was, no, they weren't. They were PhD students at Stanford in information technology. They were just young, but they were not amateurs. So what you want to do is with these deep, diverse amateurs, deep and diverse domain experts, not amateurs, domain experts, is you want them to challenge each other. So you're trying intentionally to create tension. Now, as an entrepreneur, they probably don't all work in the firm. This is why you belong to some clubs. You have, to, you know, you, you belong, you go to some university seminars, maybe to people, you know, from church or from, you know, the, where you work out, whatever it is. The third, you need to take multiple shots on goal. And this is the hardest part for the people who work for entrepreneurs. Now, you think about the entrepreneurs who are on, on the, listening to this entrepreneurs are used to taking shots they're used to trying things that don't work but a lot of people work for them aren't so what you want to do is have three to five small projects that you don't give too much money to or too much time you don't wanna take too much risk what you're trying to do is very quickly turn your portfolio of projects over because you're trying to gain real information to learn what works and what doesn't work Jeff that's what you're trying to do you don't want to spend a lot of money. And this is why, when you look at venture capitalists, like what you do, you hedge. That's what hedging is about. The angel phase is trying to figure out what's real. The mezzanine phase, maybe you're doubling down. So that by the time you IPO or by the time you, you sell out or liquidate your positions, you actually know what's working. So we're going to act like little VCs, but not crazy like a VC, just very small bits. And even as important, you're going to see who actually can make this work. Now, finally, finally. When you've done the three steps, high-quality targets, deep and diverse domain experts, multiple shots and goal the final step is you've got to learn from your experience and experiments. And I bet there's a bunch of people on the phone right now or listening to you right now who have run these experiments, but they don't get any smarter. You've got to ask yourself at every turn what worked and what didn't, particularly pay attention to what didn't and why. What do you need to do more of? What do you need to do less of? What do you need to keep doing? It's like a halftime adjustment, you know, like going to football, going to locker room. And finally, what simple rules can you devise so that the next person doesn't make the same mistake? And this is a great thing that entrepreneurs need to learn to do. You don't want the people who work for you to make the same mistakes you made, but if you don't write them down and discuss them with people, they have no opportunity to avoid those mistakes. Once you've done all four steps, and that's what this book, in very simple language, it's, it's very colorful, it's less than 100 pages, that's what you learn to do in this book. There's an assessment that goes with it. It's free. 38,000 people took it last year. It's the number one innovation assessment in the world. There's a video that shows you how to do this. There's where you go on the website to find these resources. So I created this book specifically for entrepreneurs who are trying to make innovation happen with limited resources, limited time, and, and trying to, as, as, as I like to say, make it up as they go along.
3: You know, Jeff, my listeners know that I can talk and talk and talk, but when you're talking, I just would rather listen, and I'm sure the listeners would rather hear you talk than me talk. So that's why I was very quiet there for (laughs) long periods of time, which is unusual for me because I always have lots to say, but in this case, I just would rather keep my ears open and my mouth shut. What was interesting, though, um, and all all of it was interesting, um, but when you talked about learning from your experiments, uh, you kind of concluded with... Yeah, you, know, you want to write all these down with simple rules so that the people that work for you aren't making the same mistakes. And so really what you're talking about is having a process, right? At the end yep. of the day. Yep. So if you're if you're trying to ultimately get down to a process, doesn't that kind of fly in the face of you know, uh, trying innovative and new and different things and pushing outward on that, that risk-reward spectrum?
0: It does if, if the process is closed. If you look at it as version one, version two, version three, a work in process, a work in progress, if you will, it doesn't. And I would add one other thing. When you invite somebody in to build a process for you, nobody owns it. But when you have your own people go through the cycle and build the process themselves, they own it. This was the beauty of having Apple Fellows. This was the beauty of Domino's of Olympians, 3M, the Carlton Society. You don't need everybody to be, you know, a genius at this. You just need enough people to pull your organization along, and you need them to to continually want to adjust, tweak. Even in some cases, discard and start again their processes.
3: No, that's great advice. That is great advice. And this is, uh, I think, isn't this the sixth book that you, you've written? You've written a number of other books out there: Innovation, You Four Steps to Becoming a New and Improved, uh, and then you wrote uh, The Enlivened Self: The Art of Growing. These were all great
0: books. Yeah, well, most of my books before the last year have been kind of textbooks. So if you went to, you know, Stanford or Michigan or wherever you'd probably run into it. What I'm trying to do now is go back to my roots, take the stuff that I've learned at these big organizations and it's been I've been very grateful for that, and I'm now trying to give those things back to people who are really trying to to move the needle and grow their businesses that they started and give them some of the some of the tools and, and some of the advice, but mostly the tools required to get from that from you know, from that stage where it's going well to that next big stage, you know, where you're you're really doing something now.
3: Well, Jeff, this has been a terrific topic, and we're thrilled to have you on as as a, as a guest. We are going to have to take another break here, but I want everybody uh, out there that's listening to the show uh, know that you can continue to follow Jeff's work. On his website, www.jeffdegraff.com. That's www.jeffdegraff.com. Jeff, thank you very much for being on the second stage. Jeff, thanks for having me. Take care, and we'll be right back after a short break. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage.
2: If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Joke All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk.
1: Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
2: You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, Call in to one 866 472 5790 That's one 472 5790 Or send an email to the second stage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back
3: to the show. The second stage. This is Jeff Cadlick and my tag team partner is out on assignment. Uh, I tell you, I love shows like we had today because it really gets the the juices flowing in the sense that it gives me so much to think about. I want to go download uh, uh, Jeff's book right now and read it and think about all the things that he said. I'm almost afraid to recap the conversation because I'm not going to say it nearly as well as he said it and um i'm I, so I, I am going to touch on a few things uh and get people thinking about um all of this sort of stuff uh the first was you know uh in really kind of building off the four points that he made at the end was just the high having getting to the high quality targets i think that's a great point you know you gotta you know Try a lot of different things, but you got to get to the point where uh, there's actually something that uh, you can sink your teeth into and build on, Uh, you know, build on the competing values, which he had enumerated earlier in the second segment. Um, Take multiple shots on goal. What I loved about that was. Really, you're really trying to figure out what projects are worth working on and which ones aren't and and go to the points where you can fail and nothing bad is going to happen if you do fail. Uh, but you've certainly figure out what's worth working on and then learning from your experiments, you know, document everything, focus on what didn't work and why write down simple rules and create a process. But make sure that process is really an open loop that continuously be challenged. You know, a lot of what we try to do here at, at Evolution um and certainly not nearly as well-developed as what, what Jeff was talking about is is trying to add that kind of value to get people thinking out of the box uh, and challenging the vision constantly so that uh, uh, you have a higher chance – well, really, you have a higher chance of realizing quickly whether you've got something really exciting uh, or you've got something that's not so exciting. <laughs> you got to figure out uh, – uh, what new direction that you you need to take uh, the the business in to to uh, create create value? You know, the other thing that really struck uh, stuck out in my mind was just this constant manipulation, if you will, of the risk and the reward. Where he was. Always conscious of risk, about, you know, again, going where you can fail first, uh, but also flipping the whole reward. Um, You know, when you've got nothing to lose, you got to try something bold. Uh, And when things are going really well, uh, you got house money to try something bold. And he used examples, uh, you know, at Apple uh, as one of those um, uh, examples. one of one of his analogies, and I don't remember if he was on air when he talked about it or when it was during our break, but uh, when Apple was on its back at $7 a share was when they were trying some of these bold things because they couldn't compete against Microsoft and their ability to produce a lot of software. So, again – I know I'm babbling, uh, a little bit here, but, uh, you know, that was an invigorating, uh, conversation, uh, he, as he had said, uh, you know, he has this new book called making stone soup, how to jumpstart teams highlights. And, um, um, I would suggest going to get the book. If this, uh, conversation encapsulates anything that, that, uh, you can find in that book, I'd say it's well worth, uh, the money, um, and you know, as I had said, and you'll find this on Jeff's website, uh, the list of clients that he has had exposure to and has helped uh, is is very uh, extensive and uh, very well known and regarded organizations. And I'd be shocked if you didn't know every single one of them that was that was on there. Um, and I'm going to switch tangents here a little bit, only because I think about. You know entrepreneurship when I think about innovation, and it's really important. You know to take risks, and I think in one of the earlier shows, you know I talked a little bit about the decline in entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial thinking uh, in the United States, and there was an article uh, in the the Brookings Institute did a uh, a study in May of this year uh, on the declining business dynamism, and there was an article, uh, you know, in um, the Wall Street Journal risk averse culture infects US workers uh, oh. a sharp drop in uh, sharp and silent drop in american entrepreneurs uh uh is was the title of a US News and World Report um, you know, all of this is really important because of the concept of economic dynamism, which is extremely important to a healthy economy, and even more important to job growth. In my words, the idea of economic dynamism is basically that when businesses are created, some will succeed and some will fail. Those businesses that succeed will generally create a lot more jobs, and those businesses that fail and will lose jobs. All right, folks, let's be innovative this week um, and. Have passion for possibilities and go out and uh, get Jeff's book, Making Stone Soup How to Jumpstart Teams Highlights. And finally, thanks for tuning in to the second stage.
2: Thank you for tuning in this week to the second stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week.